Welcome to Everyday Law. I am your host, Bob Clark. We have a great privilege today. We have a returning guest of considerable stature, Judge Michelle Hotton of the Maryland Court of Appeals. Welcome back to the show, Judge Hotton. Good morning, and thank you for inviting me. You know, it's always very much fun to talk to you, and I have a series of things that we didn't cover in our last discussion. And a lot of them, you know, really concern things that aren't necessarily court-related, but just, you know, human day-to-day COVID-related things that I'd be interested in your your input on on how you're doing and, and how things are working for you. Okay. First, I am always compelled to note that any legal discussion on this show is not intended to dispense legal advice to our listeners. If you do have a legal problem, it's imperative that you marshal the facts and speak to an attorney and get a full hearing of what the best strategy is for you going forward. And any of the opinions that are offered on this show are not those of Howard County Community College faculty, staff, students, or otherwise. And with that, how are you? I'm doing okay. I would gather that there have been some alterations to your life, both personally and professionally, for the last 11 months or so. Absolutely. Absolutely. I am not a fan of technology. (laughs) So it takes some getting used to in terms of Zoom meetings. Now, had you done much of that before the COVID came? No. I would imagine that it also complicates things like oral arguments in these extremely important cases that you hear. Absolutely. And I wonder if the legal community has taken the opportunity to consider the impact of remote communications on the practice of law, the rule of law, hearings, and the like. Because sometimes in the presentation, I get the sense that lawyers are not as mindful of the pros and cons of remote communication and the overall objective of persuading us in terms of their oral argument? How have they adjusted their thinking or their strategy in terms of persuading us? I would think it would be a fascinating thing for you and or you and some of your colleagues to do, in effect, something akin to a seminar on this precise topic some juncture in the future, because it is so You know, I'm not that much of an appellate advocate, but I've done it at least a dozen or more times, probably more than that in my career. And there are things that I think of as being beneficial to the likely success for my clients that are probably trickier to balance in the scheme of doing it over Zoom. I agree. I agree. And I would imagine that they're the same way doing the show. We periodically have buzzing noises and mutes and unmutes and disappearances and stuff. I would think that would be very frustrating sitting on an important case and having those things take place. I agree. So just on a basic court functioning level, how has it changed things? It means that the communications uh, between us as colleagues are occurring not in person. They're either occurring remotely through Zoom or they are occurring through conference calls. So that It doesn't, to me, lend to the fostering of more of a team, as it were. It reduces the ability of us to get together as human beings and understand what's going on in terms of our alternative lives, as it were. And it doesn't 
lend itself to the interactions that we took for granted. And I think that's probably the same in terms of other judges on the other courts and in terms of the lawyers. You're pretty much isolated. And I don't think the isolation is consistent with human nature. <laughs> I'm in complete agreement with you on that one. Do you feel that there are any positive things that have derived from this change to sort of distant argument and distant this and that? I think it gives you more time to, to think and to strategize if you're an attorney, to focus more on what it is that you really want to express to us and how you can do so with the limitations and even to consider, because I know that there have been some jury trials, at least until the step back in terms of phase operations. There were limited jury trials in some jurisdictions. And at least for me as a practitioner, the interaction between me and the jury I found to be very important and significant. And it began the moment that the prospective jurors walked into the courtroom. I think lawyers forget that they're watching you. They're studying you. They're analyzing you. They're trying to determine whether they like you or not. And that begins long before the actual formal process of voir dire. So now it's, we don't have that. It's fascinating to me that you focused on something that I explain to my clients all the time who are thinking about going to trial, and that is the number one variable in a case is whether the jury likes you or not. And, you know, there are people who I mostly do personal injury trials, but who have catastrophic injuries, who are, you know, steely, stalwart, hard work, and I just want to get back to my job people. And there are other people upon whom the impact is much greater, and you don't want them coming off as, you know, not rising to the challenge, but you never know how something catastrophic is going to affect you going forward. So I'm intrigued that the liking part is obviously just as important in your estimation as it is in mine. The human element, I think, is very important. Jurors, as a rule, are not lawyers, for the most part. And how do they derive their knowledge or interpretation about the law or what's going on in court? And the perception of judges and lawyers, that's coming from the media. It's coming from interactions that they may have with family members or people in their community. So they form a perception of what those roles are and how they interact with those roles. But a lot of times lawyers don't focus on that human element. People have to like you in, in personal injury or medical malpractice cases. If your client is still alive, that human element, that, that person really plays a role in the judge's perception of how the trial will unfold. It certainly plays a role in how the jurors perceive the value of the claim and the impact of the conduct on the parties. There was a case I was involved in, in a very small extent, when I worked with Tom Farrington, a very vibrant woman, very likable, very strong personality life presence who died of cervical cancer. And we had the opportunity to meet with her and talk to her about her case. She acknowledged that her time was limited 
She also acknowledged that the value of her claim would be greatly diminished by her departure. And I picked up on that. And in her estimation, she wanted the case to proceed, not for herself. She was thinking of her son, but she was very mindful that the window would be very short. I don't think Tom Farrington appreciated what she was trying to say. And as unfortunately it turned out, when she did pass away, there was a decision that, yes, the claim was greatly, greatly diminished. And I'll never forget how important the significance of her recognition was to me and the impact on me as I considered other cases when I worked with him. Now, that's kind of a tragic situation that the most catastrophic cases, a lot of times you don't have the person upon whom it was visited around. Mm-hmm. You know, I tried a case in Prince George's County some years ago, a medical malpractice case involving a small bowel obstruction. And the guy who died had been involved in a lot of gang activity. And so the defense was sure that they were going to paint this picture of him, you know, as almost undeserving of appropriate medical care. But this guy's adoptive father was one of the most wonderful people I've ever met. And he had heard at his church that African-American teenagers were not getting adopted by anybody. And he went out and adopted three young men and they had some difficulties, but it was one of those things where the jury was crying in the case because his loss, it didn't matter if the young man had been involved in gang activities, had been shot and stabbed before, the meaning in his life of these young men and what he could do to further his beliefs and to further the state of Maryland was so profound that ultimately the defense lawyers just, you know, ran out, virtually ran out in the middle of the case. Judge Dawson was the judge at the time. And <laughs> any of it, But they quickly decided whatever it was I was asking for was perfectly appropriate. Thank you very much. So it's kind of interesting how it works out sometimes. So I wanted to talk about a few things that, you know, the Court of Appeals, and I use this descriptor online because a lot of states have a Court of Appeals and then a Supreme Court, you know, the highest court. And in Maryland, there's confusion because you have this odd entity known as the Court of Special Appeals, as though there was a category of unique maritime appeals or something. Rather than the Court of Special Appeals is a place, if you lose a trial, you have a right to appeal there pretty much no matter what. And the Court of Appeals in Maryland is the court that has discretion to select certain important cases they make a decision on. You've served on both. Could you speak a little bit to what it's like and the distinction between the two and whether, I know there are lawyers who think that Maryland should call it a Supreme Court. Do you care about any of that? It's funny you put it as, do I care? What I care about is the impression that the highest court leaves with the community and with not just the lawyers, but I care about what the lower courts perceive in terms of whether we are working hard to adhere to the rule of law and to justice. Certainly, I can tell you that the judges on the Court of Special Appeals are extremely hardworking people. You don't have a moment to breathe or sleep. One of my former colleagues on that court reminded me of, because I try to leave people with a a visual of what it's like, and it it reminds me of uh, Lucy and Ethel working at the candy factory, right? 
and the candy is coming down the assembly line. And, and, you know, and my colleague reminded me, remember, don't forget <laughs> it's, it's, oh, yeah. it's still that way. And so I have a tremendous amount of respect for the judges on that court because the cases are coming all the time. There's little, if any discretion <laughs> in terms of what's coming your way. And you have to be able to take whatever's coming on that conveyor belt and wrap it up and put it in the box and move on to the next case without sacrificing excellence or the vision of what we think justice is all about. And so I'm always mindful of that when I'm reviewing decisions that are coming from the Court of Special Appeals. And of course, you know, they have a treasure in the form of Judge Charlie Moreland, who was with the Court of Special Appeals when at its inception, I believe, and is still working to this day, not to diminish the significance of the other members of the Court of Special Appeals now and before. But when I speak to judges from across the state, I mean, the nation, they always ask, is Charlie Moreland still still on the court? Okay, they remember Charlie Moreland, sure. you know? And I think Charlie has remained humble. Charlie is brilliant, but is just kind of like, oh, nope, that's just, you know, it's my job. This is the job that I was destined to do. So I hope that the Court of Appeals is continuing to give the perception that we take the cases seriously, we take our roles seriously, and that we are adhering to the rule of law. So just so people understand, if you go to trial and you get a bad decision, there's this appeal as a right to the Court of Special Appeals. If you're unhappy with that decision, it isn't as though you automatically get to Maryland's highest court, the Court of Appeals, to your, to your court. There's this whole process that goes on that precedes it. And I'd like to kind of get some inside baseball, as it were, feel for how all that works. Because, you know, and I don't, again, I don't want to be too lawyerly, but there's this thing <laughs> called a petition for writ of certiorari. So if I'm unhappy with the Court of Special Appeals and I want you know, Judge Houghton to be looking at my stuff, then I file this elaborate petition involving a Latin word. And what happens to it? How is it processed? And what can I do to make it better? Every month, we review, all of us, all seven of us, review the cert petitions that come to the court. We take that role very seriously. I'm trying to come up with a number. I'm going to say an average of at least 100 cert petitions, maybe more, maybe less. I think, and I was just looking at, at some notes, at least as of last year, it was approximately maybe 10% that were granted, more or less. And we're looking for whether the issues are desirable and in the public interest, which is a very lofty, nebulous kind of term. And there's a significant number that are pro se. And that means pro that se they meaning are- by people who are not lawyers. Who are not lawyers. Some are typed. Some are handwritten, and my handwriting is not the best. I don't know what happened. Once I left Catholic school, it just kind of went by the wayside. But so you have to decipher what's handwritten 
out of an average of maybe 100 or more cert petitions. And then we will make recommendations to each other about the cert petitions that must be granted or granted. And we then get together at a conference and then we discuss them. And from there, a decision is made about the ones that may be granted, may not be granted. There may be some that are placed on hold because there is a pending decision before us that could be dispositive of those cert petitions. But in terms of advice, and this is just me. Sure. Have an idea of what your most salient points are. Presenting 10 questions may not get the desired effect that you would like. Try to pare those questions down. Make sure that your cert petition is accurate in terms of what you think the material facts are and what you think the issue is. Whatever is essential to us adequately appreciating and understanding what you want us to do would be helpful. It should outline whether or not we have jurisdiction or not, and whether or not the issues that you are presenting to us have been preserved for our review. So that requires an appreciation of the record that you have before you and whether or not those points were appropriately covered so that we could grant the cert petition and schedule it for oral argument. That's a recurrent peril that is discussed in appellate argument seminars and that I've talked to people about is preserving your record. You may not think much of a particular argument, maybe that the appellate courts think a great deal more of it and or have a pending decision as you've described that's gonna have implications for it. And if you haven't essentially argued it at trial or presented it in some meaningful way at trial, then even if you're right about it, you're out the window. I agree, but you have to look not just for, did I directly preserve it? If there's a plausible argument for, well, maybe it wasn't direct, but it was indirect, and the judge knew or should have known that that's what I was doing. You know, you just have to look at it at different angles and not just accept defeat. Not intending to jump ahead too much because there were a few specific cases decided recently, but by a strange confluence of events, we've ended up having a lot of guests on associated with the Adnan Syed case. We had Brian Frosch on, we had Justin Brown on, we've had a bunch of people who are prominent criminal trial lawyers, and of course, you joined in a dissent in that case, and just speaking as a, you know, a lawyer who's not really a criminal lawyer, it's one of those decisions, I don't see how the majority arrived at it, because essentially the most important witness in the trial was left out, and a lot of these criminal cases, and you see them more than me, but you know, what you're talking about is, did this guy get effective assistance in the trial court? And it seems like this crucial witness, you know, the absence of that witness was, was crucial to getting a fair trial for Mr. Syed. And I'd just be intrigued to see whether that's kind of what you're talking about. Some folks have, at least from my perspective, misconstrued what was before us. It was not the sufficiency of the evidence relative to guilt or innocence. It was, as you expressed, based upon all the circumstances that were presented and keeping in mind, this is a very high profile case. So when it's high profile, that attracts 
a lot of not just concern, but it also attracts people that want to take advantage <laughs> of the profile of the matter. And if the question is whether or not the individual had the appropriate representation, was it adequate? Were all the bases covered? Did they really get a fair shot in terms of the question before the court of guilt or innocence? That's what concerned me because I have no idea whether he was guilty or innocent. That was not before me. It has no bearing in any way at all. So in writing a dissent, I always start with what is it that's really bothering me? Because it's never personal, but it's something is bothering me in terms of fairness, in terms of justice. And so I start outlining thoughts about that and kind of like a, a skeletal outline of what are my concerns? What is the message that I want to communicate? The objective is not, at least in my mind, to persuade the majority that they need to come on my side. It is to present a point of points that I think are important and significant and that someone needs to express them. And so once I have my outline and then I expand and then I, you know, put some meat on the bones, so to speak, in terms of the dissent, and then it's presented. Now, it's interesting because HBO did a documentary about the case that I intentionally did not look at until all was, you know, said and done. And I found it interesting because in a criminal matter, and I follow this not just as a prosecutor, but as a criminal defense attorney, sometimes you have to look at the evidence almost like Sherlock Holmes, not just to reach a conclusion, but to understand what is this evidence? What is it trying to communicate to me? And or what could it communicate to someone else? And, you know, simple things of if a witness contends there was a struggle in the car with the decedent, what evidence is there of a struggle? What evidence is there in terms of tire marks or the significance of a particular soil or grass or whatever underneath the tires? How does that evidence speak to me? And what does it say? If a car is abandoned, you know, behind some homes and was there for a significant period of time, what do neighbors, because there's always at least one neighbor that's lived in that community forever and knows when someone has, you know, has stepped on a blade of grass, what's going on? What does that neighbor share in terms of how long that car may have been there or who they saw entering the car or exiting the car. All of those things have to first speak to me and then I have to attach significance after that. Have you by chance ever listened to the serial podcast about Adnan Syed? No, I have not. I just watched the HBL, so I, I need to watch the podcast. I don't know that it's visible. It really, it, and just in my personal experience, because my kids, my daughter, <clears throat> My son's 29. So they were all into podcasts relatively early on. And it was the first great podcast. And it's just wonderfully done and is enlightening, you know, given the decision out of the Court of Appeals, the decision out of the Court of Special Appeals, the Supreme Court, the HBO. There's so many different chapters of it. And then talking to Attorney General Frosch and uh, Justin Brown, 
you can just see these nuanced differences in their perspectives on this thing that's been so covered, which shows how difficult it is to do these decisions. Extremely difficult. And you really, as an appellate judge, you're looking at a cold record. You're not examining witnesses. You're not assessing credibility or demeanor of live witnesses. You're not able to understand the impact one way or the other that the trial may have had on uh, the players. And so it's just, it's difficult, but I try not to forget what I learned from the other levels of the courts. It is one of the things that I enjoyed so much about the last time we conversed, because you clearly have had so many different experiences personally and professionally that kind of have led to where you are. And it's nice that the cumulative wisdom you've derived from that is something you bring to bear in your opinions and, you know, at oral argument. I agree. <laughs> As typically, we always run out of time, but I'd like to roar through a few things I think Chris had suggested a few minutes ago that we're nearing the end. Oh, okay. Oh, too bad. And I know. Well, we got to do these more often. That's all there is to it. Well, I was going to say, I think I discussed with you before that I'd done a Fourth Circuit argument and they asked the questions because it was West Virginia Law School. And I asked them, has oral argument ever swayed you from, and they scratched their heads for a while and kind of said, well, I don't know if it swayed us, but it's had an effect in hardening our views on things. I wonder if any oral argument you've heard at either appellate court has swayed you relative to your opinion going into the argument? The immediate answer is yes. So I would remind lawyers not to forget that because I go in with an open mind. I have what I think is an understanding of the record or at least as much as we have been presented before oral argument and certainly an understanding of the state of the law, but it, it doesn't mean that I've made up my mind. It means that my mind is open to whatever you have to communicate to us. And you'd be amazed at how much oral argument can turn the tide. So in, in the process, I got two other questions. I have a hundred other questions, but I have two others I will get to. And one is, so the oral argument takes place, you know, whether you're at the court or whether you're on Zoom, how immediately is there discussion among the judges about their views? There's a discussion after the oral arguments have concluded, just a preliminary discussion to see what people's thoughts are and where tentatively they may end up. And is it your experience that that generally is how the vote ends up being or do things evolve a lot? Things evolve over time because, you know, you get more into the record and you get more into your research in terms of not just the state of law in Maryland, but maybe other jurisdictions. So how often do you find that people putting together a dissent manage to persuade one in the majority or two in the majority to come around? Every once in a while it happens. Any advice on the best mechanism for bringing that about? <laughs> for persuading? Yes. I don't think there is a precise formula. It depends upon what you believe you want to express. And you're already anticipating what a majority opinion may look like, which I think is helpful and gives you an advantage. I think it's helpful to kind of outline a dissent or you know a rough draft of a dissent soon after argument so that some of your thoughts are fresh in your mind and then put it aside and wait for the majority opinion. 
and then you can really flesh it out and anticipate the arguments. Uh, certainly, some people wait until they actually get the majority draft opinion to start this, and maybe that works for them. That doesn't work for me. Are you ever surprised at the public response to the import of any given decision? Sometimes, because sometimes it depends upon the media's interpretation of what a, a ruling has presented. And every once in a while, you will, you know, at least I have in the past, I will get someone who says, well, you know, in X case, you know, I think you said this. Well, if I offered it, I know what I said. <laughs> I know what I said, you know, and I know what I meant. You know, someone else putting a spin on that concerns me. If you want to say, I have a different interpretation of what things are, you know, I guess that's fine. But, you know, people, especially in light of the pandemic, there's not a lot of time to get a thought across or a theme across. And you will notice, even in terms of news reports, you know, it's a few seconds. I have to hurry up and get the theme out you know, and then I'm going to move on to, to something else. There's no development of more of an attention span in terms of what you want to disseminate to the public and how you want them to respond to it. I regret to say that the time has passed already. Every time oh, I, talk, I thought we are going to talk about Roshkin. <laughs> well, I'd like to talk about Roshkin. There's some other, I wanted to talk about the, I don't know what you, whether you call it the, the co-sleeping case and decisions yeah. that have come out that yeah. I think our listeners would be fascinated by. But I hope to have you return much sooner so we can cover all kinds of stuff. Presumably by the time that occurs, the legislative session will be over and there will be things that will have an interesting effect on the judiciary there as well. Hopefully all positive. Thank you very much, Judge Houghton, for your appearance. And this has been Everyday Law. I'm your host, Bob Clark. Stay safe and farewell. Connect with us. We are Dragon Digital Radio.